0: The corporate legacy media fires yet another journalist who refuses to comply with the woke left wing ideology. I'm Kenneth Malcolm, and this is The Kenneth Malcolm Show. Hi everyone thank you so much for tuning into the show so it seems like an all too familiar story the legacy media fires a bright and up-and-coming journalist for the crime of not being woke enough if you refuse to go along with the corporate media's social justice agenda if you fail to comply with the left's rigid Progressive, anti-scientific dogma, you very much run the risk of losing your job. Now, this is true in all sorts of sectors. I've heard of friends who work at big banks who are required to put their preferred pronouns in their bio. Yes, you have to tell the public whether you are a he or a she, as if they wouldn't be able to tell uh, from your name and your photo. And here at True North, we've reported about how government workers are now often forced to attend so-called anti-racist training, which is usually just filled with racist nonsense about white people being universally oppressive and irredeemably bad the woke mind virus as elon musk aptly calls it has infected just about every company in corporate canada but it seems to be the media that is hardest hit there are anti-conservative purges happening in editorial sections and managerial rooms across the country Among the legacy media, I found that this is particularly true in the world of talk radio. So talk radio used to be a medium that was dominated by conservative voices and conservative ideas. But that has dramatically changed in the past decade. We used to hear passionate and heated criticisms of never-ending leftist dogma. Well, today's the opposite. We hear cheerleading of woke dogma. We used to hear voices ranting against things like political correctness and government overreach, rants against progressive forces undermining family, tradition, and the values of our society. Well, today, talk radio, again, champions all, the thing, all those things. It sounds completely different. It's soft, it's effeminate, it's progressive, it's unapologetically woke. The most trusted conservative voices in the talk radio world are long gone. Voices like David Rutherford and Andrew Lawton, they have been pushed off the airways. The ones that still remain, like long-standing conservative voice Charles Adler, I once worked for him. Well, he's done a complete 180. Adler used to be the voice of Canadian common sense. That was his tagline. That was what he based his show around. Well, now it's the opposite. He's abandoned common sense and he's become a pro-Trudeau leftist voice, cheerleading the liberal agenda at every possibility. It's unbearable to listen to. He routinely thanks the government and he calls conservatives the enemy. That's someone who used to be a strong conservative voice. Well, I guess he, he did what he needed to do in order to keep his voice on the air. Well, today, I'm pleased to be joined by a conservative who did the exact opposite, a conservative who refused to bend the knee. He refused to parrot the left's deranged, woke ideology, and he refused to be muzzled by the corporate legacy media. I'm talking about Jamil Javani. So, Jamil, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me, Candice.
0: So for those who are not familiar with Jamel, this is the first time he's come on the program. He's a former radio host and he is now a Senior Fellow for Diversity and Empowerment, I like that title, at the McDonald laurie Institute. He also sits on the Premier's Council on Equality and Opportunity and is an advocate for community opportunities in the Ford government. Jamil used to be the host of Tonight with Jamil Giovanni on News Talk 1010 here in Toronto, but he was recently fired by Bell Media and iHeartRadio for refusing to parrot left-wing talking points. Jamil is a graduate of Yale Law School, one of the best and most selective law schools in the world, and he's the author of the book Why Young Men, Rage, Race, and the Crisis of Identity. So... Jamila, it's such an honor to have you on the show. I I know you and I talk, but this is the first time you've come on the Candace Malcolm show. So welcome. And let's talk a little bit about your background. So what got you interested in the world of media? I know you went to law school. You're a lawyer by training. Uh, Why did you choose to go into media and not into law?
1: Yeah, well, it's great to be with you, Candace. And you know I've uh, been a listener to the show for a while, so it's cool to be on with you. Um, You know, basically, my interest in media came from doing advocacy work and activism uh, on behalf of the communities that I serve and that I have lived in. And, you know, I did about, you know, routinely doing interviews and, you know, uh, writing op eds, eventually turned into uh, some relationships in the media. And I think a a tipping point for me was the summer of 2020. Uh, In particular, you know, the Black Lives Matter uh, protests, some of which turned into riots in the United States, were happening. Uh, There was a church, a a very famous and one of the oldest churches in Washington, D.C., that was burned down. You might remember it's the the famous church where Donald Trump took a picture with an upside down Bible. Um, And uh, when that church was burned down, it just was very troubling to me uh, to see how everyone was pretending that this was somehow the will of black people, that black people wanted churches burned down, that we wanted riots, that we wanted police officers being attacked. I, I just, that is not the experience I've had as a black person, both living in the United States and in Canada. And it's also not what anyone who I worship with at church or who I see in community centers, what anyone wants regardless of their racial background. So it was very frustrating for me to see that. And that's what made me kind of say, okay, maybe I need to spend a bit more time in the media space because there's gotta be somebody to speak against this stuff. And to show that, you know, the average working middle-class black family has the same political priorities as the average working middle-class family of any other race, white, Asian, Hispanic, whatever. Um, And this idea that the media is consistently sort of manipulating certain communities to be, in my view, Trojan horses for um, a left-wing agenda. I just think that needed to be uh, rebutted. And that's where the radio show came in, where I I sort of said, okay, I'm I'm interested in doing more media now. And I had a radio show pitched to me and I said, okay, I mean, it's different than anything I've done before. But at that point, I felt like my voice and frankly, the voice of the guests that I wanted to bring on was necessary.
0: It's so interesting. I, I, I want to go back to that summer of 2020 episode, because it, it was such an interesting sort of turning point uh, in, in retrospect, right? You had COVID in full-fledged. Everyone was ordered to stay at home. It was a new a new edict that we're all sort of getting used to. We were told two weeks to flatten the curve. And then, as we know, that turned into many, many months of lockdowns. And in the midst of all that, there was this huge traumatic event that was captured on film, and it sort of captured the imagination of the entire world, um, I'm talking about the the death of George Floyd uh, the, the murder at the at the hands of a police officer in Minnesota and 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 and, 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 and that kind of really powerful story exploded into just uncontrollable riots uh, all over the country it seemed to me the media was really kind of cheering that on they wanted to undermine Donald Trump's authority they knew that the election was coming up and they wanted to paint the picture of, of a lack of stability and, and complete chaos um, under Donald Trump's watch I'm, I'm wondering from your perspective um, how, how did things get so out of hand and you said that the that the demands of people and the actions of the of the rioters and 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 the, and the protesters there's peaceful protesters mixed in with the sort of chaotic rioters um, was not the will of these sort of typical middle class black family uh, or, or black people. So how, 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 how did that get so separated? And it, like, what, what, what do you think of the fact that this issue of, of policing and police brutality aimed towards the black community um, c- sort of got so separated um, from the best interests in, in protecting and ensuring stability um, and, and lawfulness in black communities?
1: Well, the unfortunate reality is that a lot of us uh, who may be considered, uh, you know, symbols of diversity, whether it's black people, indigenous people, women, the LGBT community, often we get used by elite liberals who have their own political agenda, whatever it may be at the given time, whether it's an attempt to draw up uh, voters or whether it's an attempt to push forward a new policy framework or increase corporate power in a certain industry, a uh, certain aspect of our lives, like big tech, for example, um, we get used. And uh, it's unfortunate because a lot of us do believe, and you know, it's, it's I don't say this dismissively, a lot of us do believe that these liberal elites are the only way for our communities to have a voice. And so we're all too willing to accept being manipulated and being used by them. And I think that's what happened in the summer of 2020, which is, you know, the the Democrats wanted to get uh, Black voters in particular, but I think all sorts of voters um, angry at uh, the Republicans, angry at Donald Trump so that they could count on their support in the 2020 election. And I also think that a lot of corporations who uh, benefited, frankly, from pandemic policy because they were big businesses and small businesses, their competitors are being put out. And so um, embracing race politics became a way to brand themselves as compassionate and thoughtful and caring at a time where masses of people were being locked down and big business profits were skyrocketing. So I I really don't believe there's a lot of heart for disadvantaged people of any race among these liberal elites. I think a lot of it is using us as pawns. And I think the clearest example of that, as you mentioned, Candice, would be the way policing has been dealt with in the last two years. The reason why What happened with George Floyd is so tragic, in addition to him losing his life and his family having to mourn him, is that police are necessary in all of our communities, but especially where children are exposed to crime. Uh, No parent wants their son or daughter walking home from school and having to worry about a stray bullet hitting them. So in those sorts of situations, police violence is doubly tragic. One, because of the violence itself, and two, because it undermines a really important uh, role for government services to have in creating an even playing field for people who are living in an environment where crime may be a greater influence over their public safety than in other places. And what we saw liberal elites do is instead of leaning into that complexity and saying, okay, how do we try to solve this problem so we can have safe streets, but also make sure that police powers are used in safe and restrained ways. They decided to just to make police the enemy. And we've seen homicide rates in many uh, areas in the United States, Uh, increased dramatically since then because liberal elites have created narratives and fanned flames of division between police officers and the communities that they serve. So if liberal elites have a heart for our communities, if their genuine interest is in the betterment of Black people, Indigenous people, women, LGBT, whatever minority group, or or in the case of women, majority group that they're claiming to um, have a concern for, I just think that Outcomes would be different and policy choices would be different. And I think that exposes, I think, the real intention behind a lot of this uh, so-called activism.
0: Well, it seems like there's so many contradictions, Jamil, in the left world left-wing worldview and ideology because I'll just give you another example you know the left uh, has also been sort of championing this idea of um, aboriginal reconciliation and you know doing the similar kind of routine where they look the other way when uh, statues are torn down and churches are burned down in Canada um, and so that they really pretend to take an interest in uh, you know improving the lives of first nations people while at the same time they kill and cancel uh, pipelines and and projects that could give jobs and give meaningful work to people in northern communities so so while at the same time as sort of pretending to champion the cause on um, the policies that they enact harm the uh, the potential of, of, of working and, and having meaningful uh, you know work in your life that, that that enables you so much more growth i see the same kind of thing with black lives matter it's like you know, they, 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 the people on the left, the spokespeople, the media, they cha- they, they, pretend to champion black causes. They put a, a black square on in their Instagram. But then they also call for defunding the police. I know in, in Toronto there was a big issue. The Toronto started a big expose on the issue of carding and uh, the idea that, that black people were disproportionately stopped by police, asked for their ID. Um, and the idea was sort of the proactive policing, that they, the, they would go into neighborhoods that had higher crime and just sort of keep the peace to prevent crime from coming down the road uh, after the Toronto Star investigation they stopped that practice and looked into it and m- maybe there was some disproportionate racial profiling going on but it's it's, un- it's undeniable that the crime rate in Toronto raised uh, went up after that and we had more murders in Toronto than in New York City um, I think in 2018 or 2019 so it seems like a lot of the policies that the left advocate for are actually worse off I'm wondering if you can comment on that.
1: Well, yeah, so the, the police carding or street checks, it's called in some parts of Canada. Um, the One of the reasons why it's a problem is that it allows for too much discretion on the part of police officers to, to determine who is suspicious, who should be stopped, who should be questioned. And I think, you know, as a conservative, I have a sensitivity to that uh, because I think it, it can enable government overreach into people's lives. But also as a black man, I have a sensitivity to it because I, I experienced those sorts of policies and what it's like when a police officer just arbitrarily decides to treat you like you've done something wrong when you haven't. So I understand the concern, and I don't think it's it would be wise to dismiss why people get concerned about these sorts of policies. But to your point about the Toronto Star, for example, what it exposes is that when a problem is uh, raised, our Uh, people who sort of have a more nuanced, balanced and my, from my perspective, more sophisticated uh, approach to trying to develop a solution, actually prepare to compete with the left-wing narrative that is going to sound the alarm and remove any kind of nuance in the discussion at all. And frankly, misrepresent a lot of these communities, including many black families, as though we are anti-police or we hate the police or don't understand how critical the police are for us to have any sort of equality of opportunity in this society. So in my view, what the Toronto Star's success is in shaping perceptions of police officers in this part of the country is a sign that we don't have people sort of on the other side of the debate well prepared to actually push back on the Toronto Star's efforts. I can give you a very clear example of that. We had, in my view, one of the most talented judges in Canada, uh, Justice Michael Tulloch, write a report in 2018 about police reform in Ontario. And a lot of his recommendations are applicable in other provinces as well. And in that report, not once does a single black community organization that he interviewed, not once does a single black mother or father that he spoke with or indigenous mother or father in that report say the solution to any single problem is defunding police officers. All of their concerns could probably summarize as mostly around training, building better relationships, police and communities. That is what a black judge and all the Black and Indigenous community groups he interviewed, those that was their perspective. Now, you would think that conservatives uh, in power, whether it's the provincial government here in Ontario, for example, might see that as an opportunity and say, OK, so these are actually really reasonable, practical ways of addressing people's concerns about policing. We should get behind that. It actually doesn't harm anyone. It doesn't take Uh, responsibilities or resources away from police officers. In fact, it might lead to more resources for police officers. And yet conservatives sat on that report for two years and did nothing. And then when the George Floyd thing happens, the left is ready to push their agenda. And we had nothing to say in response because our work, the work that was done on behalf of the working middle-class families that we should be thinking about and prioritizing, was just sitting on a shelf somewhere. So in my view, it's one, You know, we, we can certainly be frustrated with the Toronto Star's alarmism or other examples of the left being really successful in changing a conversation for the worse. But there's also tons of examples of conservatives just not being ready to fight back and not being in a position to advance our own worldview. And we can't blame anyone for that but ourselves.
0: You're so, true. You're so right. It's so true that conservatives are constantly on the defense. And even when we have opportunities, like I would say that COVID presented a golden opportunity for conservative governments to look at reforming our healthcare system, something that conservatives have long complained about, the rigid government monopoly of healthcare. Uh, well, here we have this opportunity where healthcare system is, is failing and, and a lot of Canadians are noticing that. And rather than conservatives being proactive and trying to push forth they're on agenda. They're still sort of playing defense on the latest uh, you know, cultural issues uh, with liberals. It's, it's, it's so so unfortunate Jamil. I, I want to go back to the whole uh, situation with you at News Talk 1010 and what happened there. So so you said that you got um, approached and someone pitched a radio show to you in the midst of, of this this uh, social situation that we were just commenting on. Uh, so so tell us about your your career with the radio station, um, what your show is about And how long how long you lasted on the air?
1: Yeah, so I was on the air for about a year and a half from summer 2020 until the end of 2021. The person who was sort of directly above me in the very large bureaucracy that is Bell Media, he was great. He understood that I was not a sort of token liberal Uh, that I was a Black man with largely conservative views on many issues, that I was not going to be a champion for Black Lives Matter, that I had my own opinions, that I was going to bring on Black folks as guests who are not going to be parrots for the liberal status quo. He knew all of that, and he embraced it, and he was a great boss. But every single manager and executive above him was just, uh, like, obsessed was trying to force some sort of conformity on myself and on others on the air. And that was where a lot of the problems existed, where it just felt like every day was an exhausting battle. You know, uh, I knew anything I said was going to be misinterpreted and I would be get some kind of weird email saying, Drill, you know, we heard, we heard someone's upset about this. And I just, I just, it was like wearing me down over time. That year and a half was brutal in terms of just not, I, I couldn't feel like I could just do my job and then go home. It was like, I do my job and then I count down when someone's gonna complain about what I've said. Now let's keep in mind, what they're complaining about my opinions are held by the majority of people in this country. I do not have fringe views on any topic. My views on the air and my political opinions are informed by the reality that I grew up in an immigrant, mostly immigrant community. I've lived and worked in middle-class communities all across Canada and the United States. I'm very aware of the challenges people face. And I want to raise a political uh, conversation that I think actually responds to the concerns of the average mom and dad in this country. So they're upset with me because I am not taking these ivory tower liberal positions, whether it's on things like identity, race, and gender, whether it's on uh, class issues like unionization, whether it's on uh, the power of the state to punish people who um, come from communities that I think have historical reasons for being hesitant to get vaccinated and trying to encourage some sort of sympathy and empathy for those families. Like it was just so weird to, to live in reality where most people either if they even if they disagreed with me, the average person I interact with at least can see the reasonableness in all the positions that I take. And yet in Bell Media, these people who want to sell you the internet and cell phones, who in theory should be responsive to, you know, what the masses of people think and believe in their priorities and their concerns and their debates, wants to push absolute conformity on a lot of these issues on the air. And that boiled over uh, in Canada Day last year, uh, where the day before Canada Day on June 30th, They wanted us to play a bunch of clips of people complaining about how racist Canada is. They wanted us to go on the air and basically decry the country as racist. And I was just like, this is not reality. Like I grew up in Brampton in a neighborhood that is mostly black and Sikh. I never once heard people badmouth the country. They may have issues with uh, discrimination in some cases or feeling like they're not getting an equal opportunity. Sure. But I've never once heard people say, I wish I never came to Canada, or I wish I could leave this country, or wow, how terrible, never, once, never. And so the fact that they were trying to take their one Black radio host and turn him into a whiny, white, uh, graduate student, I just was, I just refused to do that. And, uh, you know, these white liberal executives, I think, took uh, offense to the fact that I, was unwilling to do what they asked. And I was very, as you could probably tell from me now, very passionate about opposing their pressure. And, you know, unfortunately, it's an industry, as you know well, uh, Candace, full of people who are willing to bend the knee on everything, even when they disagree privately. The media world in this country is like a giant country club where people are afraid of offending their overseers because they may get kicked out. And because of my background as a lawyer, because I work in policy and activism, I don't need the media. And so I was not willing to let these people manipulate me into thinking I'll have no career unless I do what they say. It's just not a position I was willing to accept. And I think that more than anything is what led to them terminating me, was they realized you know, they've got someone who might set a bad precedent if other people in the industry look at me and say, oh, you can have a career? While like saying what you believe and standing up for yourself, well, we can't have that. So they tried to make an example out of me, and I think they thought they could, you know, uh, incentivize me with money or with additional job opportunities to prevent me from telling the truth of what happened. But I was I'm not willing to sign an NDA. I'm not willing to take their their bribes. I'm gonna tell the truth, and uh, you know, I know they're upset about that, but that's what happens when you. Uh, treat people this way, you know, they try to dehumanize conservatives, well, we're going to force them to recognize our humanity.
0: It's, it's so there, there's so much irony in in that story, Jamil, because they hired you uh, to comment on a very, you know, public social situation that was going on with George Floyd and Black Lives Matter. And then they wouldn't let you have your own voice, they wouldn't let you say what you wanted to say, they tried to pressure you. So you had white liberals pressuring a young black radio host to, 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 to repeat a certain type of of ideas and it's like do do they not realize (laughs) how sort of out of touch and uh propagandistic they are it's it's really it's really wild I wonder, I know that you, uh, you said you started in radio in 2020. So you you might not have known what the industry was like sort of back in the day. But when I I was growing up, I remember my dad would always listen to the news talk uh, radio station in Vancouver. And it was it was right wing. That was that was what talk radio used to be. It was, uh, you know, people talking about how they wanted government, smaller government, and, and basically to be left alone by government, and that was sort of the theme that, that I would constantly hear. When do you think that started to shift, and when did this sort of you know, woke uh, dogma and, and, and the necessity that everyone have the exact same opinion? Uh, when do you think that started to take over, and, and what was causing that?
1: Well, one of the one of the, a couple of things are happening here. So one of the big issues is that uh, too much, too many media outlets in this country are owned by a very small number of people. So Bell Media owns CTV News, they own a bunch of radio stations across the country, they own TSN, they own a lot of media outlets. So even though the average consumer may see these different brands, at the end of the day they're controlled by the same people. And what that means for us as Canadians and living in a democracy is that a small board of directors, a small C-suite set of executives get to decide what is politically acceptable on these outlets and what isn't. So the centralization of corporate power over the media is a big part of what's gone wrong here. Because what you have in the case of Bell is the same company deciding what is politically correct on the radio or on television is also a very risk-averse company trying to sell you the internet and cable services and cell phones. So they're taking a mindset Of selling you products and applying that same corporate philosophy to the media, which I think the average Canadian would say, we'd love it if our media were independent enough to actually criticize big corporations. What if Bell Media is doing something that's harming the country? Like, for example, Bell Media as a corporation takes positions on political issues, like, for instance, systemic racism. And then now, it spreads that philosophy in how they want to talk about racism and race on all these media platforms. That seems like something journalists should be talking about. Do we want corporations promoting their political philosophy from the top of a board of directors all the way on down through its media platforms? We don't talk about that. The other issue that comes from Bell Media's concentration of power is we know that Canadians are charged more than almost any other country in the world, very high rates for cell phone services and for uh, internet services. Bell Media just raised its prices a few months ago. That seems like something Canadians might want the media to report on. Should we be concerned? Should journalists be talking about why is it that Canadians have to overpay for these things? Why is it that it's becoming increasingly difficult for the average family, especially during a time like this where everything's becoming more expensive? Why is it that we shouldn't be making these things more affordable, especially, by the way, when the government's going to force your kids to stay home and take classes online? Why is it now that Bell gets to raise the price of the Internet while more parents actually need the internet to give their kid a fair education. These are all questions that you would want a a fair and independent media to be exploring and yet you see very little coverage on these issues. So I think that's one big problem is the corporatization and the centralization of corporate power in our media. Another issue though, uh, I would say that that comes out of this is a generation shift. And this is something that I think is really important for people to understand. There is an older approach to conservative politics uh, that I think is still welcome on a lot of these platforms. And what I mean by that is if you come out on the radio or on TV and say, we should be cutting taxes and I'm really mad at Justin Trudeau because he's not cutting taxes, that kind of conservatism is still embraced because frankly, a lot of these liberal executives, they also want their taxes cut. They talk a big game, but they want to save money too. But the kind of conservative politics that I would say is of our generation, Candace, where you're seeing, you know, millennials, Gen Xers, Gen Zers talking about things like uh, race and gender and, and being, you know, and having a clear view that is different from liberal orthodoxy or talking about inequality and what we do about the fact that, you know, very small number of people got very rich during the pandemic that uh, big tech power is growing and accumulating at an unprecedented rate. These are the kinds of issues that I think younger conservatives are more inclined to talk about. These are the kinds of things I talked about on my show and they have a very strong problem with that. So they would love it if they could trot out uh, you know, elderly people, to uh, repeat talking points from the 1980s, because then they can caricature conservatives. They can say, oh, these people are out of touch. They don't know what's going on in the world right now. That's the kind of conservative they would like. And frankly, you can see even some politicians that, that mirror that approach to politics, get a lot of support from the base Street type of, of crowd. But if you are bringing a different perspective, one that might actually challenge these folks, it's yeah, it's gonna it be a tough battle, and I think that's that's a big part of what's changed in the media landscape.
0: Well, it's so true because there's always a certain brand of conservative that wants strange new respect from the media, and I and I see it sadly too often with conservative politicians. Uh, well, well, they'll they'll present themselves as being socially liberal but fiscally conservative, as if that's the sort of acceptable combination in in the media. Uh, where you're completely right, the, the the cultural battles of our of our time are really the defining issues, and and that's the, those are the ones that certainly the media and, and too many conservative politicians uh, shy away from. I'm not talking about social issues. I'm talking about cultural issues, and I, I I actually feel Jamil that there's a bit of a turning point. Like the left has had a dominance for, for, for the last I don't know 20 30 40 50 years when it comes to social progress right the the, the left has pushed its ideas through academia through the media through corporations big business Every, everywhere you look the left is is gaining ground but I think I think they've gone too far and there's a couple of big examples you see Ron DeSantis the the uh, governor down in Florida really pushing back against Disney and it looks like you know, having having a victory in terms of, uh, you know, pushing through legislation that protects parents from their children being indoctrinated with the gender ideology in school. Uh, you know, Disney pushing back and then Disney losing their special uh, status that gives them special tax and uh, you know, exemptions from regulations. Um, So on the one hand that that cultural battle is being fought out and I think won by conservatives and then on the other hand You have Elon Musk successfully It looks like buying Twitter and and saying I'm going to recreate Twitter to be what it was supposed to be a free speech platform So I'm wondering if you can comment on these, on these sort of victories that conservatives have been having, whether you think that there is a, a shift and a turning point, whether you would categorize these as victories or if it's too soon to tell. Uh, what are your thoughts?
1: Well, I think you're right that there is a pushback mounting. Uh, it's becoming more commonplace to see people you know, acknowledge like this has gone too far, this, this woke political movement, uh, however you want to label it. I think it's becoming increasingly common for people to to feel more comfortable saying what they probably believed two years ago, but didn't know how to say without potentially risking their jobs, their reputations. So that is a good measure, I believe, of pushback growing is just seeing it be more commonplace for people to express dissent from this uh, very uh, well-funded, well-financed political movement. Where I'm a little bit concerned is with you know with someone like Ron DeSantis I think he's on the right track uh, in terms of establishing some uh, safeguards for how power is used in our society I don't see the Elon Musk uh, thing really being an example of that like it's really just switching from one center of power to another maybe he'll use it in a way that's more pro free speech but even Jack Dorsey's comment on this is that he doesn't really believe that Twitter should be a company, a private company anymore. He said that, and he said, if it's gonna be a private company, he's glad Elon Musk is in charge, but he doesn't believe that it should be a private company. And I, I tend to uh, agree with that. And I think Ron DeSantis's views are in line with that too. Now, I don't know if that means it should be considered a public utility. Some of these um, uh, big tech firms, you know, I'm, I'm not super confident that's the solution either, but broadly speaking, I do think that we need some sort of regulations in place, and this is what Ron DeSantis has done well, just to make sure that power accumulating in the private sector is going to have some checks and balances, the same way conservatives rightfully want power in the public sector to have checks and balances. So from my view, that should be the ultimate goal, and any change that happens that doesn't increase accountability on powerful institutions, probably could be a good first step, but probably is not where we should be hanging our hats, I think.
0: Well, it's interesting because we, we talk a lot about how corporations, especially big tech, they are more powerful in countries, and we see examples of that time and time again, but they're not governed by anything remotely like a constitution. So there's no uh, you know transparency or public disclosure in terms of how the algorithm works. You have no idea why you're not getting the same kind of reach as you might have before. It's, it's completely secretive. Um, and then when it comes to protecting free speech and freedom of association and, and uh, you know, the, the right to you have have a platform, essentially, the right to speak in in the, in the public, you know they'll, they'll just erase your account and disappear you without any kind of, again, transparency or due process. So it seems like it, it is a bigger challenge than just who's at the helm. Um, however, I, I, I think I can't help but feeling like they that we're reaching this, this cultural turning point where the left has just pushed us too far in so many ways, and it's been adopted by all of the sort of elite fancy people that hold the same opinion, that, that we're starting to see um, a bit of a pushback. Maybe that's maybe that's too optimistic on, on my behalf, but 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 it's it's starting to feel like maybe there's a cultural turning point uh, happening. I'll give you the last word uh, to give give your thoughts on that.
1: I certainly hope you're right, uh, Candice, that there's a cultural turning point. And I think you've given some great examples of, of where we have uh, reason to be optimistic. The only thing I would say is that this is a, a consistent sort of up and down ebb and flow. And really what conservatives need to do, in my view, especially in Canada, is build institutions, uh, whether it's media organizations and policy organizations like True North, whether it's think uh, think tanks or uh, even businesses, whatever realm of society you're in, having institutions that are going to be, uh, you know, steadfast in adhering to conservative principles and making sure that the ebb and flow doesn't leave conservatives without a place to have our voices heard, to make our concerns known to the public, and most importantly, to develop solutions on how we might make the world a better place. I think we need those institutions. And I don't think we should outsource that to Elon Musk. So my hope is that we all just keep, you know, fighting the good fight and uh, building the kind of institutions that can do right by, uh, you know, the working middle class in this country.
0: Oh, that's such a good point. All right, Jamil, thank you so much for joining the show. It's really been great to have you on. I look forward to having you on again. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us. That's Jamil Javani. I'm Candice Malcolm. And this is
1: The Candice Malcolm Show.